But tonight we're going to deal with the fall, Genesis chapter 3, the fall. And I was thinking uh, about this uh, this week as I was preparing this message, and particularly today. You know, some people might ask, some Christians might ask, well, why, why do we need to spend so much time? I mean, why are we going to spend a year essentially walking through the Old Testament? Aren't we New Testament people? Aren't we New Covenant people? And, and, and part of the answer to that is, yes, we are New Covenant people. We are New Testament people. But the Old Testament is still vitally important for us. It's really foundational for us. And as I was thinking about that and reading some things this week uh, that sort of dovetailed along with that, I just wanted to share with you that there is an issue, a real issue here with, with this, with the idea of the Old Testament and Christians. And, uh, you know, Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, that things just sort of come around and go around and they repeat themselves over and over again. And, and all throughout church history, you probably are aware that there have been different heretics and heresies that have sort of arisen to the top, and then the church has always responded and pushed those things back down. And one of the earliest heretics that came on the scene early, he lived in the first century and into the second century. So he was alive, presumably at the time when some of the apostles probably were still alive. One of the earliest heretics was a guy named Marcion. You may have heard that or you may have never heard that before, but Marcion, some people call it, pronounce it Martian, but I just feel like that's weird. So Marcion, and I'll spell it for you if you want to look him up and do some more reading. Marcion had a real problem with the, the scriptures. And Marcion's problem was that he couldn't seem to reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God that was revealed to us in Christ and the writings of the apostles and those things. He just couldn't reconcile those things. He had a real problem with reconciling the, the wrath of God that we see in the Old Testament and the love of God that we see demonstrated in Christ and, again, in the apostles' teaching. He couldn't seem to reconcile the law that we see presented in the Old Testament and the Jewish scriptures. I say the Old Testament. For them, it would just have been the Jewish scriptures. And, and he, he couldn't reconcile the law there and then the grace that we find and the teachings of the apostles and the life of Christ. He just couldn't reconcile these things. And because he was influenced by all sorts of things I won't bore you with tonight, he came to the conclusion that the God of the Old Testament must be different than the God of the New Testament. They must be two completely different gods. And the God of the Old Testament was just a mean and vengeful and wrathful God. And the God of the New Testament who sent Jesus and was manifest in Jesus was a completely different God who was only concerned with love and with grace and with these things. There was no wrath in him. Of course, the church responded very quickly to that and excommunicated him from the church, but not before he produced the first, what some people believe is the first canon of Scripture, the first collection of the books of the Bible that he said, these are the, these are the books that we should study as Christians. These should make up our Bible. And one thing was noticeably absent from his canon, which was the entire Old Testament. He just decided that we have no use for that any longer. And he took the Gospel of Matthew out because it was too heavily influenced by the Old Testament. He took other books out that he thought were just too heavily influenced, other passages out, and he had this stripped-down sort of um, 
edited version of the New Testament. And he said, this is the only thing that we need to focus on. And he got rid of the Old Testament altogether. Now, he, he's gone. He died 1800, over 1,800 years ago. But Marcionism never seems to leave the church. It's always present. And it's becoming more and more. We're living in one of those ages where it's, again, rising to the top. And the church is having to push back against it again. For instance, how many of you have ever heard of the Red Letter Christian Movement? Have you heard of that? It's not hard to figure out what that is, is it? Like, if people say that we're red-letter Christians, what do you assume that they're telling you? We're only interested in the words of Jesus. Those are the only things that really mean anything to us. And Tony Campala, who's the outspoken spokesperson for the red-letter Christian movement, said, we believe the morality in the red letters of Jesus transcends that found in the black letters set down in the Pentateuch. In other words... The red letters of Jesus in the New Testament and in the Gospels take precedent and transcend and over and above any of the black letters of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the foundation of the Jewish Scriptures. He says, Jesus Christ and His words have sort of set all those aside. We We don't need to deal with those anymore. And you say, well, that's just a fringe, left wing group of liberal Christians. Well, here's one that you might recognize. I'm sure a lot of you will recognize because we've in the past used some of his materials in this church. Last year, Andy Stanley made headlines when he preached a sermon. And his premise for the sermon was that the apostles, and I'm quoting him, the apostles unhitched the church from the worldview, value system, and regulations of the Jewish scriptures. You say, well, certainly he didn't mean what that sounds like like it means. But he went on later to say in a book that's just been released that's all over the place called Irresistible, which I suggest you don't read. He said this. He said, the Ten Commandments have no authority over you. None. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. And then in a recent interview with Jonathan Merritt, the son of James Merritt, who you may recognize that name, Andy Stanley said this, and this wasn't very long ago, just a couple months ago. He said, I'm convinced that we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament or the Old Covenant out of the argument. Now, that's a pastor of one of the largest, what's been considered conservative Protestant churches in America, one of the most popular evangelical pastors in the nation. And he's saying now that I'm convinced we make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament or the Old Covenant out of the argument. So this idea that we can leave the Old Testament behind is not something that just happened 1,800 years ago. It just keeps happening over and over again. But what happens if we don't have the Old Testament? I mean, really, what happens if we leave it behind? What if we do what Andy Stanley said and just leave the thing behind? We don't need to deal with it anymore. It has no authority over us anymore. Just... Leave it in the background. What happens if we do that? I mean, just think of John 3.16, which is the most well-known passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. You could all quote it if I asked you to quote it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so on and so forth. Well, how does that even make sense without the Old Testament? Like, how would you have any idea what was meant in that statement or what God meant to teach us in that statement if you didn't have some background coming to it 
from the Old Testament. Like, without the Old Testament, we can't understand the human condition. Without the Old Testament, we can't understand the substitutionary death of Jesus. And, and, and above that, the Old Testament teaches us something else that's vitally important. There's a higher purpose to the Old Testament. R.C. Sproul said that above all things, what the Old Testament accomplishes is the self-disclosure of God. The chief character in the Old Testament is God. And he says, how in the world could a Christian ever come to think that the Old Testament is irrelevant? To be irrelevant would mean that the character of God is irrelevant. So this idea that maybe we should just get to the New Testament. Let's get to the Jesus stuff. Let's just get to the red letters. It's incredibly dangerous. When we're studying the Old Testament, and we spend all this time laboring in the Old Testament, what we're doing is setting a foundation. We're getting to know who God is. And we're getting to know who we are. We're getting to know how he relates to his creation and how we relate to him. And when we get to Genesis 3 tonight, which we're, if you're not turned there already, go ahead and turn there. If you get to Genesis 3 tonight, we're not just reading a story about some ancient myth. We're not just reading a story about some far-off people who have nothing to do with us. Really, this is our story as we relate to God. This is what happened to us as human beings. So our story is in Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you've read the first chapter of Genesis, or I'm sure at some point you have or studied through it, or you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know that in the first chapter of Genesis, we have the creation account. We have God creating. In six days, God created the, everything that there is and filled it with everything that there is. And John told me something wonderful about that tonight. I'll let him share at the end, maybe, that you all get a kick out of. I know I did. But God creates, and at the end of every day of creation, God offers the benediction, and he says, it's good. On the sixth day, he crowns his creation with human beings. He creates man. And then in chapter 2, we get to chapter 2, and and chapter 2 is just an expanded look at the creation of humanity. So God's creating, and and he gives us a sort of an intimate look at that and what it looked like when he created Adam and the things that he said to Adam. And we get to Genesis 2.18. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because I think it teaches us something so profound, and that's where God looks at his creation. And for the first time, he announces that something's not good, And he says in Genesis 2.18, it's not good for the man to be alone. Think about what God said in that, that one statement. That the only thing that wasn't good in his creation was that man was lonely. That says something about God and who God is and what God wants for us. And I think it's incredibly tender. You see a piece of God there. He wants us to have a relationship. And so he quickly fixes that problem by creating Eve. And out of Adam, he brings forth Eve. And so God's created the first man, the first woman. He sets them in the garden. And he gives them dominion over everything. He makes them co-regents in sense. They're ruling over the creation that God's placed them in. And at that point, everything is good. Everything's good. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And this is where everything comes off the rails. In Genesis 3, you can feel the change happening even in the first words, I think. Like if you look at it, Genesis chapter 3 in the first verse. Now the serpent was more crafty 
than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And you just sort of get this feeling, don't you? Like this ominous feeling, like up until this point, everything's good. And then we're introduced to the devil, and we're told that he's crafty. That does not mean he makes beaded bracelets and paintings and... Another word that's used is cunning. He's more cunning. Another word that I'll probably misspell is beguiling. In these words, there's a certain sense in which we get the idea right off the bat, right? That this is not good. Like, there's nothing good happening. There's something dark that's entered into the scene here. And we're told, you know, the the craftiness, the cunning of the devil, that he's beguiling. We're told in the New Testament, sort of, we have these descriptions of him that help us understand what that means and expand on it. Like, Paul talks about the schemes of the devil, that he's scheming. We're supposed to be on our guard against the schemes of the devil, that he... He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy to be on guard because the devil sets snares. He's out to get you. You know, Peter uh, talks about the devil as a roaring, prowling lion, roaring about, seeking whom he could devour. So we have this idea of this dark figure who, who arrives on the scene and he's crafty and he's cunning and he's there with one purpose. He's there to assault God. Don't miss that. Don't miss that the devil is not... God, he couldn't have possibly understood all the ramifications of what would happen. He's a creature. He's there to assault God and God's creation. And he does that first by opening his mouth and he says, he said to the woman, and this is so important, did God actually say, Or has God really said? It's the first way that he arrives on the scene. His first assault. Did God actually say? I'm going to write it up on the board. That's the first question. His first assault, he begins with this sort of subtle, crafty deception. You see the subtleness of it? Did God actually say, when it comes to Eve, did God really say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden? And how does Eve respond? Like right back to him. She responds, no, that's not true. Right? We made of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And we know that God didn't say that last part. And we don't know why, really. We don't really know why Eve said it. I think Eve said it because they just understood we're not going near that thing. That's off limits to us. There are other people who have different interpretations of that. But either way, the devil comes to her and says, did God actually say you should not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden? Eve rightly responds back and says, no, God did not say that. 
He said we could eat of the trees in the garden, but there's this one tree that he put off limits to us. And this is interesting because I think that the devil and his craftiness and his schemes knows that just by asking that question that way, that Eve would answer it in this way. And there's sort of this thinly veiled suggestion in there that even though God's given you a lot, he's still roped off certain things for you. You see that there? Like Eve responds and says, no, he's given us all. Look at everything he's given us. Oh, all but except one thing. And it's like the devil's pointing out to her that, that if God's withholding anything from you, even if it's just one little thing, if he's withholding anything, if he's making any rules, or he's saying, you shall do this, or you shall not do that, or he's making any commands, if God does anything that violates your liberty, then he doesn't think you're anything more than just a slave. Just a subtle nudge in the direction of rebelling against God. Now, before we go any further... I know you've heard this, but I need to say it. Before we go any further, you know that the the first attack, the first point of attack against humanity comes where? The Word of God is attacked. What did God say? The devil brings that into question. Questioning the Word of God, the accuracy of the Word of God. He does it to Eve in the beginning, and we see Jesus flipping the narrative when he goes into the wilderness to be tempted, and the devil does exactly the same thing to him. And we don't have time to study that tonight, but Jesus responds back and says, no, 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 man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of the Lord. And Jesus stands firm on God's word, and he won't let the devil twist it. But remember that, because anytime we see attacks coming against our faith, in one way or another, it'll all boil down to this. Did God really say? And we're seeing that over and over and over again in our current situation, our current culture, that people are now, and they have been for hundreds of years, but we see resurgences in certain places and on certain issues, and now people are reinterpreting the Bible, and they're coming again with this question, did God actually Say that. Now Satan's assault, if we go to verse 4, it goes from being subtle to obvious. Look at verse 4. And she says, if we back up, just so we understand how he's responding, says, you shall, in verse 3, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree. It's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And God did say in Genesis 2.17, if you eat of the fruit, the day that you eat it, you will surely die. And look at the response in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so now this is really the, the full frontal assault that the devil wages against God. Satan comes and he says to her directly, God did not say it. You don't have to worry about what God said. It's not true. Satan directly contradicts God. God said, Genesis 2.17, you will surely die. Satan, chapter 3, verse 4, says what? You will not die. It's exactly what he's doing. You will not die. 
God said it, but don't worry about it. And here again, we have another terrible attack that we see surfacing over and over again throughout the history of the church where Satan is saying, essentially, do what you want. You can live without consequences. You don't have to worry about this. You don't have to obey God. Nothing will actually change for you if you disobey God. There's no consequences for us if we disobey God. Here's the underlying falsehood. God won't punish you. God won't punish you. And this is a popular theme today. In 2011, the pastor of the fastest growing church in America, Rob Bell, wrote a book called Love Wins. And the premise of his book was that in the end, nobody will be punished by God. That if you disobey God, you'll likely experience hell on earth. But in the end, love wins. And he'll just bring you all in. Nobody has to experience... So essentially, it may make your life more difficult, but there's no real consequences to whatever you do. Just do whatever you want. It's another lie of the devil. Love wins. Just do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about punishment. It's a, it's a, a lie. It's not a new lie. Satan did it here in the beginning. Marcion, we talked about earlier, did the same thing when he said, God just loves. He ne- there's no wrath. He just loves you. These people that I spoke of earlier, modern-day contemporary people, are doing the same thing. Love wins. There's no consequences. Now notice what he says to her here, where he tells her that if she eats the fruit, in verse 5, if you eat the fruit, your eyes will be open, and then what? And then you will be like God. Now, This is really interesting here because Eve should have responded with a simple statement at this point. And John MacArthur, by the way, points out all throughout this narrative that she could have spoke up at any time. And what she should have said at this point was, I am already like God. Remember last week? How did God create us? In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, He created us how? In His image. And in his likeness, we're already like God. But again, in in that statement, there's this subtle sort of craftiness where he's sort of saying, well, maybe you are already like God, but you're not really like God. You're not really as he is, knowing good from evil, having this elevated knowledge. You're not really like him. If you would just take the fruit of that tree, if you would just violate God's command, do what you want to do, then you'll really be like God. You'll be a God unto yourself. Theologians call that the invitation to autonomy. You know what autonomy means? It means literally you are a law unto yourself. If you do this, if you eat, then you won't need God anymore. You'll be free. You'll be free. So if we summed up Satan's attack here, we could say that he attacked the truthfulness of God's Word. 
the trustworthiness of God's character. And the general goodness of God. That's the attack. The truthfulness of God's word. Did God really say? The trustworthiness of God. You will not die. Don't listen to God. He can't be trusted. The goodness of God. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. In other words, Satan is saying, God's withholding something from you. It's not really good. He's withholding something from you. And then what happens next? Verse 6. This is the greatest tragedy in human history. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Verse 7. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Just stop right there for a minute and think back to last week. Man created in the image of God. Created to display the glory of God. Created to be in fellowship with God. Created to have this wonderful relationship with God that we see at least alluded to in verse 8 where it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Remember the old hymn we used to sing? And he walks with me and he talks with me. That desire to have that relationship with God. And, and here we have the, the great tragic moment where instead of going to their God and having fellowship with God, what happens instead? And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. I mean, just captured the gravity of what just happened. Now you have for the first time. And when we read this, we don't know time. We don't understand the timeline. We don't know how long they'd been in the garden before this happened. We don't know how long they'd been alive before this happened. It sort of reads like they were created on day six. God rested on day seven, day eight. They, they fell. That's likely not the case. That There was some time there where they had a relationship with God. They were in fellowship with God, they were communing with God, and now, suddenly, they're separated. They flee from the presence of God. And now, from this point forward, when sin enters the world, there's now separation between God and man. When sin enters the world here, we become what Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, now children of wrath. That in our sin, because of our sin, all of us have become children of wrath, recipients, deserving recipients of the wrath of God because of our disobedience. But what's wonderful is, and this is why it's so important to get Genesis 1, 2, and 3 right, 
is because what we have from Genesis 4 onward is the story. In that moment, there's separation. And from that moment forward, we have the story of God reconciling His creation and His people back to Himself. That's what the Bible's about. 